together to Revelation in chapter 2. And uh, verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write The word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, we are moving into this new section in the book of Revelation as we've gone from introductory remarks in the first chapter uh, in terms of to whom the letter was written uh, and who was writing it, the circumstances surrounding the letter, and uh, most importantly, this revelation of Jesus Christ in all His glorious character. And we were seeing there for the last couple of weeks uh, the, the character of Jesus there uh, in verses 12 down to verse 16 and the impact that that had on John and the the reinforcing of Jesus that uh, he would be with his church and one of the things that this section that we're moving into now gives us is an understanding into the mind of Jesus what Jesus thinks of his church and really that is the most important thing to us Jesus purchased the church with his own blood and if he did that, then he is most interested in, in attending to every detail of her life and existence. That only, only stands to reason. Looking, uh, just thinking about uh, in commercial terms, if you make a very expensive purchase of something, you, want, you have a vested interest in looking after that. Uh, not to reduce it to commercial terms, of course, but Jesus, having gone to such lengths to secure the welfare of his bride, he is going to ensure that she comes forth the best that she can be. And that's what the letters here are doing. The letters, as, we've, as we saw, were written to the seven churches. And the word seven, as is so prevalent throughout Revelation, is a perfect number. Now, Jesus has more than seven churches, and he's, he's concerned with more than what's going on just in those seven churches here. So it is a picture of the issues that beset the church in all ages. Not least of which is the, the issue that the church in Ephesus is facing here. That is a problem that every church in all ages has to contend with. But we have to 
uh, understand that what Jesus thinks of the church is more of a greater importance of what than what you think of the church. And we can be very complacent. We can think, well, we're doing okay. And we start to look for certain indicators. People are always doing that, aren't they? Uh, economic indicators in the economy or uh, social welfare indicators. What's the state of the family? There's all sorts of indicators in society that tell us how we're doing. But... Uh, but sometimes we can use the wrong indicators to, to, to decide how we're doing. Uh, sometimes we may use only economic indicators. Well, Canada's doing well because the economy is doing well. Or Canada's doing badly because the economy is doing badly. And we, 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 we choose certain indicators to say, ah, oh, there it is. That's the state of our country. Well, of course, ancient Israel did that. They, they, God said during the time of Isaiah, look, you are very outwardly prosperous. You're doing very well for yourselves. And yet the land is full of idolatry. The land is full of evil. The land is full of uh, all manner of sin. And so God's indicators were the ones that were to matter the most, weren't they? What was the state of religion in Israel? Not just the state of the economy. What was the state of of, uh, of, of temple worship. Uh, what was the relationship of people before God? And uh, so it is with the churches. Uh, there were churches saying we're doing well because we're pro outwardly prosperous. Jesus says you think you're rich and wealthy, but really you're blind and naked. And so Jesus was turning uh, that all those indicators on their heads. And we, as we come to examine our own um, uh, health as church, as a church, we need to be saying, what does Jesus think of the church? What does Jesus think of disabled? And what does Jesus think of me personally? Uh, as his, that searchlight goes deep into my heart to find out what am I really like? And... I don't think any of the letters uh, drive home that as well as this first letter does. Because it sets before us things that any church would give its right hand to be. And yet Jesus says, though you have all of those things, if you are missing one ingredient, you're no longer a living church. So it's significant that we not draw upon our own indicators and our own measurements to determine what is the health of our church in Disable, but to be asking as we go through these letters, what are Jesus' indicators? What does Jesus say makes a healthy church? The letters are basically outlined similarly. There is an address that is given first to the angel of the church in a particular place. The speaker is mentioned. The knowledge of the speaker, I know your works. Uh, the a, a pronouncement, a verdict, a judgment of, upon those works. Uh, a command to do something. Um, uh, and a promise that is made at the end. If the particular church turns and repents. So that is an outline of basically all of the letters that will follow in the next couple of chapters. 
and we're going to take each one in turn. But we want to look at Ephesus. 30 years before, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, and in it he spoke a great deal about love. Ephesus was known as the Vanity Fair of the ancient world. In it was contained one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis and the Statue of Artemis, or Diana of the Ephesians as, they are, as she is sometimes called. And around the worship of that goddess was incredible evil, sexual immorality, and Ephesus was known uh, greatly for it. And into this, the uh, 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 Apostle Paul and Timothy and John all minister at some point in their lives. And in many ways, the church in Ephesus grew stronger. Uh, they, they took to heart many of the things that Paul and uh, John and Timothy had said. But there were certain flaws. There were certain fatal flaws in the development of the church in Ephesus that we want to see uh, this morning. And so he, he begins, Jesus rather, he speaks to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, again, we are not entirely certain of the uh, uh, fu function of this angel, that the angel was a guardian of the church, as we know in other places of the Bible, that God employs these angelic spirits to watch over His people at times in their lives. And uh, this is probably what we're looking at here. But this is to whom the letter is addressed. And he says there, in, very, uh, in language very much reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, the prophets of old were fond of saying, thus says the Lord. It was a direct message from God Himself. And of course, Jesus is coming with that same authority, isn't He? He's coming with that same directness. This is what God is saying about the church and to the church. He who, ha who controls the seven stars, and as we see back earlier on, the seven stars in the last part of the last chapter are the angels of the seven churches. In other words, He has authority over them. He controls them. He has authority to dictate the ministry that they have. And, uh, and the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is walking among the churches. He is with them. He's not off in some kind of cosmic dimension. But Jesus by His Spirit is with us. Where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in the midst. And so Jesus knows His church intimately. You might say, I know Disable. I know the people in it. I talk to them. I've fellowshiped with them. I know them. Well, Jesus knows us in the same way. But in a way far greater than any of us can know one another. You remember when you were a kid, maybe you had a teacher that walked up. When you were doing your exam, she was walking up and down the aisles. and you, She might have had those soft shoes that you, you uh, 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 couldn't uh, detect and... 
just uh, uh, watching over your exam. I'm sure Anita knows what I'm talking about here. She's been a teacher for many years. <laughs> Looking over, making sure that everything was uh, being done right and so on. And uh, just walking up and down, walking around, observing what's happening. And uh, this is what Jesus is doing. He is walking among the lampstands, which speaks of his knowledge and intimacy of the church. So he, he goes to great lengths to say to us, look, I have purchased you. I have bought you with my own blood. I am your Lord and your judge, but I am also among you and with you. And now I want you to open up your heart to let me speak into your heart about the things that I think are not only necessary, but vital for your life. And this is what he's saying to the church in Ephesus, that what I'm saying is, is vital to your continued existence. And that if you do not hear what I'm saying, you will no longer exist. You may be a building, you may have people in it, but it won't be a living church. And so what Jesus thinks of the church is so vitally important. He starts off by saying the things that he does see and know and understand. I know your works. I know your works. I know how you've been living. I know this, the culture in which you are. I know the way in which the devil is trying to throw you off your game and distort the teaching that, uh, that is vital for the salvation of souls. I know the, the, uh, uh, the other cultures around you that don't accept you and want to destroy you. I know your works, your toil. I know your hard work. And all of these things that Jesus is going to say are commendable. And He's commending them. He's not saying stop doing these things. He's saying yes, do them. And we, can, we, we know from other places that we've studied all these things are vitally important. Be diligent, Paul says. Serving the Lord. Fervent in spirit. Um... Uh, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. So yes, he says for us to toil. He knows our patient endurance. He knows the patient endurance of the Ephesian church. Just as we read in our uh, a bulletin from week to week about different places in the world where people are enduring. Elder Zhang, a leader in the Reformed Church in China, arrested after a church raid. And so the prayer is, remember Him in your prayers and praise, that God, uh, praise God that He remains spiritually strong and in good health physically. Continue to pray for His family as well as... You know, we're praying for endurance in that person's life. And this is what Jesus is commending. That in spite of all that they've gone through, living under some of the most tyrannical uh, uh, emperors like Domitian, they are still enduring and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. These people in the church in Ephesus realized the culture. They were able to read the culture and say, look, here's what the Word of God says. These are the standards of righteousness. And we 
are going to work as much as we can to try to impact the culture without letting the culture impact the church. In other words, letting the culture change the church. And those evil practices of immorality uh, are, are, are that which need to be kept at bay. And we can see even in this month of Pride Month how many churches, unfortunately, are leading the way uh, uh, on these things that the Bible clearly speaks of as being wrong. And uh, this is how Jesus commands them. Not just that, but many other areas where they have taken a stand. You cannot bear with those who are evil. Again, friends, this is not something that we uh, think about lightly. Um, tonight, we are looking at uh, uh, walking with the wise, walking with Christian friends, making associations that are going to help us in our Christian life. And we are to avoid evil. We're to hate that which is evil and cleave unto that which is good. And so, Jesus is commending them for these things. I know. I know your toil. I know your endurance. I know you cannot bear with those who have evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, they were doctrinally in their teaching, they were strong. Paul himself said 30 years earlier in the epistle to the Ephesians, he says that we be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So they were to be commended for listening to Paul in that regard. One ancient bishop Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was uh, 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 quoted as saying that the church in Ephesus was so well taught that no unorthodox, that's no heretical teacher could gain a hearing among them. They were sound in other words. They were sound in their teaching. They were sound in their doctrine. They were fervent in keeping the world out in terms of the evil of the world and not letting the world shape them. All of these things were important. In fact, even at the end, uh, Jesus speaks of the Nicolaitans and the, the, the practices of the Nicolaitans which He hates and that they also hate. They were people, again, uh, endorsing immorality, much like Balaam and Jezebel in the Old Testament uh, 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 sought to promote immorality among the children of Israel. And Jesus says, I hate that, and I'm glad that you do as well. So there, there are things in this letter that we must embrace. Not just embrace the criticism. Sometimes we, we <coughs> think of these letters as focusing only on the criticism. You know, the loveless church. But we also have to remember that there are many things to commend. Uh, uh, this church and the things that we ought to seek to emulate especially in the culture in which we live and as we see many other churches uh, conforming themselves to the world we must be humble enough to realize that left to ourselves we too 
will crumble and fall. And yet the church is called to be faithful, to stand against the world in all ages, and to be those who have something to give to the world. If we let the world come and shape the church, shape our thinking, our teaching, our practice, what a, what different? What's different about what we now have to give to the the world? The, the, the salt has lost its saltiness and is good for nothing, Jesus says, but to be thrown out and trampled. We have to maintain our uniqueness in the world, a uniqueness that comes from righteous living, shunning evil, proving and testing that which is true, enduring suffering as the Ephesians were doing. All of these things are good. But none of these things are enough to keep Jesus from censoring the church. And from even saying to them, you are in danger of dying. We might think to look at this list that the Ephesians were perfect. If you had stopped there, you would say, I want to belong to that church. I would give my right arm to, to pastor that church. Or have those things said about my church. They're all so wonderful. Faithful endurance. Doctrinal precision. Righteousness in, 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 in the law in many ways. And yet Jesus comes with this criticism. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Thirty years ago, before this, the Apostle Paul ended his letter this way to the Ephesians. Look at what he said in chapter 6. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, a lo with love incorruptible. That's how he ended his letter. And now, 30 years later, Jesus is speaking to that same church and He says, you listen to a lot of the things that the Apostle Paul said and I commend, those, commend you for them. But the one thing that Paul spoke about and emphasized there, you have forgotten. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Their love was faltering and weakening and even dying. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 24, of, uh, uh, when the pressures of the age will come upon the church, that the love of many will grow cold. The church in Ephesus was no longer captivated by the love of Christ. That can be very true, can't it? That you can have all these things in a church. You can have doctrinal soundness. You can, have, you can say, well, we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we don't let any false doctrines get in. And we don't let any false teachings get in. And we, 
we try to keep the world at bay and make sure that we're speaking out against the evils of the world and all of these things and we're busy doing this and busy doing that and what ends up happening it can be those are good things but they can be used as camouflage for something inside that is dying and this is what was happening to the church in Ephesus. All of those other things were outward. They were whitewashed tombs. They looked beautiful on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. There was something vitally amiss with the church in Ephesus. They had become much like the church in Galatia that Paul wrote to, where legalism had gotten in. They too had forgotten their first love. Remember what Paul said in that letter? He said, when I first came to you, I came to you with an affliction. And the affliction was probably Paul's eyes. And he says, you would have reached in and gouged out your own eye and given it to me if I had asked. So great was your love. So great was your joy. And where was that coming from? Paul said to them. It was coming from the fact that you, Galatians, were lost. And you came to realize that Jesus Christ, as was plainly told you, came to save sinners and rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And you believed on His name. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. You simply received it and you were filled with joy and love. And he says, what has become of you? Who has cut in on you? Who has persuaded you down a, a, a different road where your love has grown cold and all you care now about is legalist, a legalistic approach to God? It's no longer the things that Jesus did. It's now the things that you are doing that matter. Are you better than the guy in the pew next to you? Do you give more? Do you go to church more? Uh, have you, are you keeping the right days and eating the right foods and all these things that Paul talks about there in Galatians? Paul says, no, now it's all about you and them. And you don't love them because they're your competitor. You're their enemy. You're, you're the one that's trying to get up, one up on them. And you've forgotten that it was all about God's love for you, saving you out of no reason in yourself except for God's love. And you lost that joy. Friends, that's what he's saying to the Ephesians. That's where, why their love was dying. They had all these strengths. But they made their strengths the whole reason for what they were doing. They were means to an end, not the end itself. And all these other things are means to the end, not the end itself, not the purpose itself. That's what God was trying to remind His ancient people of in Jeremiah 2 where we read, I remember the devotion of your youth. What is He talking about there? He's talking about when God sent Moses down into Egypt and brought the children of Israel out I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. 
through a land not sown. So it is with them. It doesn't matter if it's Old Testament or New Testament. The world can get a hold of a human heart and make it as cold as ice. And so the same language that Isaiah used and Jeremiah used for an adulterous people, a people that had fallen away from God, Jesus is now using for the church in Ephesus. He's saying, you've abandoned me. And listen to the language of of Jeremiah, how Jeremiah speaks of this in the same way uh, at the beginning of that book. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in the land of drought and deep darkness. In other words, why, why did your fathers forget me so quickly when I brought them through a wilderness, through danger, through all of these places? Jesus is using the same idea here with the church in Ephesus. And He's challenging us in the same way. Joel Beakey says that a a, a fading love may not keep us out of heaven, but we can keep heaven out of our hearts if we fail in our love for Christ here on earth. And what Jesus is saying here is that your love for Christ is is of more importance than Christian activities, than evangelism, than any other aspect of your Christian life. Your love for Jesus. Why? Because that's what it's all about. <laughs> I hate to speak in such simplistic terms, but that's what it's all about. <laughs> it boils down to that. 1 Corinthians 13, Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because faith and hope will one day go. We won't need faith and hope. We'll see Jesus. Faith will, we won't need faith. We won't need hope because what we've hoped in will be right there. But love will be abiding forever and ever and ever. And that's what Jesus came to show and create in us. And when we lose that, we've lost the mission. We've lost the heart of what God came to do. For God so loved the world. And In loving the world, He expects those who know Him to love Him back in the same way. To be able to say like uh, 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 Mary, who after realizing who Jesus was, she takes an alabaster jar full of perfume that cost a year's wages and pours it out over His head. She is weeping so much that the dirt is rolling off His feet and she dries His feet with her hair. She is loving Him because she knows who He is and what He has come to do. Or like Zacchaeus who goes and he's up in this sycamore tree and he comes down and he goes to his house and he brings Jesus into the house and gives him dinner and Jesus tells him about God's love. That it's unconditional. 
that it's free, that it's, it's, it's of God's grace. And Zacchaeus, now full of the love of God and love toward Jesus, opens his cupboards and he says, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've stolen anything, I give back four times as much. That's what it is all about. Love to Jesus. More love to Jesus. Nearer my God to Thee. Nearer my God to Thee. Though it be a cross that raises me, nearer my God to Thee. That's what it is. Now abide these three. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, says Paul, is love. Not doctrinal precision. Not endurance. Not any of the... These things are great and we need them. And the Bible speaks about them in so many places that we need to cultivate them. But if we use them, nobody likes being used, do they? Do you like being used? By someone for wrong ends? Well, if these virtues could speak of endurance and doctrinal precision, if they could speak, they would say, hey, you're just using us to guard a lack of love in your own heart. You're empty and you're dying inside and you're just using us to make yourself look like you're alive. And look, you're not. And Jesus says that these things are so, this is so serious that none of these things that He commended them for could save them. That's quite astonishing. Things that any minister would give his right hand to say about his own church. And yet none of them could save them unless the very reason that Jesus came in the first place was alive in them. God so loved. They then must love God in return. And in doing so, love one another. Jesus said, this is the first and great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Churches have fallen in the sense that we have built our pride and our reputation about the, on the things that separate us from other people. And yet the first question we have to ask is, is the love of Christ seen there is the love of Christ among us. Paul prayed in Philippians in chapter 1, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You notice that Paul is saying there, it's not an either or. It's not an either or. It's a both and. That your love may, may grow with what? Knowledge, teaching, and discernment, like the Ephesians had. They were able to discern who was real and who was not. Who was evil and who was not. They were, Paul is saying, I want your love to grow. And in that love, that there be knowledge and discernment. How can we love Jesus and not love truth? He is the truth. How can we love Jesus and not be discerning? How can a parent love its child and say, who are we going to get to babysit our child? Oh, just anybody will do, I guess. Go out in the Trans-Canada and flag somebody down and get them to 
that babysit our child. You would be, would you love that child? No. You need to exercise discernment and wisdom and knowledge. You have to know things. What, what, does, what medications are my, is my child on? You have to know these things. But love, true love for Jesus will bring those forward. But if those things are all we have and there is no love for Jesus, that in itself is a, a cause for Jesus to say, I will remove the candlestick. You will no longer be a church. I will not, no longer be among you. So he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. God has given us memories to think back. He's always, the Bible's always saying remember, right? Remember the, remember in, in, in Scrooge how where, where Ebenezer was taken in his dream by the ghost of Christmas past and he went back in time and and uh, he was shown the joy of working at Mr. Fezziwig's and, and uh, uh, the joy of uh, falling in love for the first time with, uh, with uh, his, his uh, uh, fiance and all these things. And Scrooge's heart was melted. He was able to remember back. And the Spirit was reminding him of where he had fought, from where he had fallen. What he had become. A cold, hard money grubber. Those became the ends. And you remember, who was it that said, I'm just, uh, just excuse me, for that. I'm just da- indulging myself here. Uh, 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 he's the, one of the, I think it was one of the, man, the, the ghosts that said, mankind is your welfare. Mankind is your uh, purpose. I'm getting the quote all wrong. But in other words, he was saying that money had become his end, but he was reminding him that mankind is, should have been his purpose. And that he should have been using his wealth for that end. So they were to remember from where they had fallen. Repent and do the works that they did at first. Go back to the, to the basics. What was your life like when you first came to know Jesus? Begin to show Him that same love that you knew then. And not, not basing your love on outward, external things. That are the means, but are not the ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree symbolizes the eternal life that God has made available to us. Jesus says that I will grant them to eat of the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. He's taking us back to Genesis. He's taking us back to the place of life and to to be able to partake of that fruit. And this will be the reward of those who persevere in the, the most important things with Jesus Christ. And so friends, we need to realize this morning as we look at the passage like this, that Jesus is speaking to us out of great concern. That He is challenging us to remember the things which are of the, the most important in our lives. Of the reason why He came and to foster that first and foremost. Let's pray.